and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm recording this late in the day on Thursday because tomorrow morning, probably around 6 a.m., I'm going to load the canines into the car and drive them 2,400 miles or so, um, I guess it's something like that, uh, to the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I think I mentioned this. I, I, I apologize in advance. I've done so many podcasts in advance lately or out of sequence that I sometimes forget what hasn't aired or what has aired, but I know I've talked about this at some point. Um, um, I'm doing it for a bunch of different reasons. One, I'm stupid. Uh, two, both my wife and I are kind of addicted to cross-country drives, although she can't come with me on this one because she is, as some of you probably remember, she's a ghostwriter and she's been killing herself to make a deadline. She's never missed a deadline and, um, and she doesn't want to start now. So she's killing herself to finish this thing and then she's going to fly out, out over the weekend and I'll meet her in the San Juan islands and, um, and she'll pick up my daughter. It's all complicated without the benefit of being terribly interesting. So I'm going solo, uh, not really doing anything touristy. I appreciate the people who say, Oh, you should stop by my house or whatever, but that's not that kind of, it's not this kind of drive, at least on the way out. It's get there in time kind of thing. And one of the, one of the problems is, uh, the, Washington state ferry system, which has always been a tribute to the inefficiencies and, um, minor and petty corruptions that come with, uh, the combination of a state monopoly and state control. Um, they've always been bad. Um, but in, since the pandemic, they've gotten much, much worse since the, uh, um, um, earliest days of the, 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 pandemic they um would routine like when i was out there over a year ago and i have lots of family out there so i get stories and all that um they would run hours late off schedule um and that was bad enough but now uh they all of a sudden have canceled all reservations and cut ferry service in half and so obviously um, one of the th great things about being on an island is that you're on an island, but one of the terrible things about islands is you have to get to them. And so I have to get out there, um, in time to risk not getting on a couple ferries. And so, uh, we're, we're going to haul out there stopping only for bathroom breaks for quadrupeds and bipeds. Um, and also like sleeping in hotels and whatnot. Um, I do weirdly love these drives. If you have podcast suggestions for me, um, please send them my way. I think I'm going to finish the revolutions podcast on Russia, which I'm, I've been really enjoying. Although man, does he start early? Um, I mean, I, I joke about how my book starts 250,000 years ago, but I move through that stuff pretty quickly. Um, he, um, is being quite thorough and it's something like 70 episodes long and I'm probably 30 into it. And I think 
I just heard like 30 episodes in, 28 episodes in, the phrases Bolshevik and Menshevik come up for the first time. Um, so, but if you have other podcast recommendations or audiobooks for that matter, please let me know. Because obviously I can't do any reading while I'm driving and um, I am not going to be in a big reading mood when I finally get to the hotel. Um, and um, so uh, what to talk about. So I did this big piece, um, which we brought out from behind the paywall, at least by the time you, you hear this, um, responding to Christopher, Christopher DeMuth's essay in the wall street journal which is an adaptation of a speech he gave at that national conservatism conference which he's apparently the chair of um i think i was pretty clear in the piece i was i I was nothing but polite because unlike a lot of the people i get into these arguments with i really have an enormous amount of respect for christopher demuth he was the president of ai when i first came there and um you know 25 years ago and he's he's a brilliant guy and, um, and I just think he's made a, a number of weird analytical and tactical and philosophical mistakes, which I get into and I got into, um, um, both in the Wednesday G file and the, a little bit in the G file that will go up tomorrow. But since you'll be listening to this on Saturday, the one that went out yesterday and, um, um, and I think it's important, you know, I mean, I, I know I'm a broken record on this stuff, but, um, and I don't know why this is, seems so complicated to a lot of people, but, um, I really think the playing, you know, of the, uh, if you can't beat them, join them, fight fire with fire ethos that pervades so much of the right is, is just incredibly dangerous and ill-advised. Um, doesn't mean I don't, don't agree with a lot of their criticisms of the left, a lot of the criticism with the culture. You know, I've been railing about things like identity politics and all of these kinds of things my entire professional career. You know, I wrote three books that basically take aim at, you know, or two and a half books that basically just take aim at sort of various progressive and secular assumptions about the world. I say two and a half because Suicide of the West also, you know, I was... I don't want to say I was prophetic, but, um, I saw the way, one of the reasons I wrote that book, the way I wrote it was because I saw that the right was giving into these trends and tropes and, um, philosophical categories of the left. They were just putting right wing clothing on them. And, um, I, I'm one of these people who really believes, I mean, you can call it, you know, if you're a classical liberal, if like you're like a Will Salatan guy who I did a podcast with today and you're in favor of, I don't know, a more generous welfare state or, you know, you're, um, more sympathetic to I don't know, I don't know, paid family leave or whatever. I have a perfectly fine conversation with you and, and and an empirical conversation with you about what are good policies and what are not good policies. And I think there's a lot of room to do that on with, with lots of people who don't call themselves conservatives, but you know, a conservatism that no longer conserves the sort of the, the constitutional classical liberalism that is not at odds with conservatism. Um, but is actually just simply part of American culture. Um, 
I have no faith in the left of being willing to be the primary carriers of, of that, those arguments. Some would. Some would see the market failure on the right and say, hey, wait a second, we got to stand up for something like free trade, let's say, you know, or economic growth, which, you know, I, I pretty passionately believe that if you were a liberal um, and you have all sorts of liberal assumptions about how, I mean, are sort of progressive, right? And all sorts of progressive assumptions about how, um, what the state should do, what government should do, what we should do for the least among us, all these kinds of things. All of those things are impossible without economic growth. And there are plenty of people who are left of center, who are Democrats, who understand that. They just think that there's more slack in the rope to accommodate more state interventions than, than I do. And those are prudential, you know, kind of debates that you can have. But at the end of the day, you know, constitutionalism, um, some version of originalism and constitu constitutional understanding, the idea that the words mean something and that you can't breathe new life into them and say that, well, our, our ends are so great that we can play games with the means. Um, the idea of sort of limited government, free markets, all that kind of stuff. If the right doesn't defend that stuff, then I honestly believe that no one's going to defend it. And, um, or not, certainly not enough people are going to defend it. Um, you know, we got, one of the reasons we got the new deal, which I know a lot of people really like, um, but just as a pragmatic, you know, objective analytical matter, one of the reasons we got the new deal was that the, the Overton window of, of on, on economics and political science and political philosophy moved so far to the left that um, it was basically a bipartisan consensus around big chunks of the statism that you got during the new deal. And to some extent, that's even true about the great society as well. Certainly on civil rights, there was a positive, um, bipartisan consensus. Um, but looking at a future where instead of really a bipartisan consensus, um, in a positive way, there's sort of a bipartisan consensus that whoever gets into power gets to do whatever they want, you know, um, reward their friends, punish their enemies. If conservatives start buying into that kind of stuff, you know, f for tactical reasons, for philosophical reasons, it doesn't matter. Um, we're screwed. And that's, that's why I spend so much time sweating about these arguments on the right. I don't love doing this. I really didn't like being critical of Christopher DeMuth, Christopher DeMuth, because I, I I really do admire and 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 like the guy, and I learned a lot of things from him, but I think he's making a mistake. And um, anyway, I don't need to belabor that. If you read if you read the two G files, then you sort you sort of know where I'm coming from, and there's no reason for me to go on about him, or really, I'm not even going to sort of dwell too much on nationalism, except to say that. A lot of isms are um, sort of, so like there's this great passage, I wish I had it in front of me, um, from Albert J. Nock, the guy who came up, you know, who wrote about the remnant that inspired the title of this podcast. There's this, you know, one of the, the I wrote this piece, maybe we can put it in the show notes, um, um, about Nock about 10 years ago for NR that was, um, 
you know, I, I likened him to a certain kind of cliched character in various science fiction or fantasy um, TV shows and movies, you know, the immortal, um, you know, like in Star Trek, they run into the guy who's been around since ancient Rome and he's seen everything, you know, and then there's the vampires who've been around forever, the sort of Methuselah type characters, whatever, Dorian Gray, you know, there are lots of different variants of it, but the guys who've been around for so long that there really is, they sort of have this attitude of nothing new under the sun um kind of perspective and and you know so the names of things change and the arguments for things change but the underlying material forces or motivations um are the same and anyway knock has this quality in a lot of his writing where like you know he says stuff like, and i'm butchering the quote but he'll say stuff about you know it's remarkable that the stuff they're trying to do with the agricultural investment bank under the new deal that these people think this is some new idea when, you know, this was first started, you know, this was first tried in the Shin dynasty in 479, that kind of thing. And I feel more and more like that. That's one of the reasons why I harp on all this elite stuff, but you know, sort of elite theory and all that kind of thing is that I think a lot of the arguments that you see these days that deviate from classical liberalism on the right are really just um, efforts to sort of support, to, to gain power for one faction of elites. And I've talked about that a lot, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But I think there's a psychological commonality to a lot of the isms that, you know, we, sit, we think when we say social justice, you know, and I wrote, I think, a very good chapter on this in my underrated book, Tyranny and Clichés, um, there's a really fascinating history of the concept of social justice and, you know, Friedrich Hayek, you know, made it his life's goal. The concept of social justice was basically the white whale to his Ahab. He hated it so much, but you know, um, and it's basically, it's, it's how to put this. So like, I, I've long had this argument that there are certain forms of, um, a certain isms or progressivism or statism. I'm trying to be as broad as possible. So as not to get, accused of, you know, special pleading for, you know, my priors and all that kind of stuff. But there is this general approach, um, of a lot of isms that likes to see society as this sort of organic whole, you know, there's lots of people getting into a lot of trouble about talking about things like the body politic. This was one of these metaphors that really consumed a lot of early 20th century progressives. Um, in um what's his name's book illiberal reformers um which is a fantastic book um which whose name i will come to me in a second but uh you know he makes the case that part of the problem with thinking about society as this organic whole um is metaphorically it's 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 sort of like what de tocqueville called a a clear but false idea it appeals to us on some sort of reptilian brain level you know, we like to think of society as if it's like a family. Um, sometimes we talk about, you know, how the president is our father and all that kind of things. But when we liken society to a single organism, um, it creates a permission structure to do all sorts of things that are dangerous and certainly illiberal. And, um, and part of this mindset, I think, comes from this desire to sort of see the state as the substitute for God. 
right? The state is what we have because God doesn't exist. And the state, therefore, is charged with designing society from above according to, you know, notions of justice or rightness and all these kinds of things. That's, you know, I'm not saying that it's necessarily evil in intent. Um, sometimes it's very noble in intent. Um, um, you know, a lot of the post-liberal Catholic integralists, I don't think, have evil intent um, or, or sinister intent necessarily, at least not in the stories they tell themselves. They think they're in the business of saving people's souls um, and, you know, upholding, you know, decency and morality and the, and the highest good, according to Aristotle and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, but even those guys who at least acknowledge the existence of God, they see themselves as sort of the stand in for God, right? That, that they are God's, um, proxies here on earth to design, um, you know, human life in the image of heaven, you know, which is what Eric Vigellen calls immunitizing the eschaton, which is where you try to make this life, this world perfect. Um, when the problem is, is, is immunitize means to make flesh, to make real, to make tangible. And eschaton means, you know, what is reserved for the, like eschatology for the, uh, the next life. And so, um, the problem with that is you cannot make, um, you cannot create a perfect world. You cannot create a world without trade-offs. You cannot create a world where um, all good things go together and no bad things happen, where it's all, you know, all the clouds are silver because there's, it's not just a silver lining. It's just all good things. And, um, and I think a lot of people fall into that. I think even libertarians to a certain extent can fall into this. I think this is a very, very human thing. And, you know, I mean, there are certain kinds of like our narco anarcho capitalists and Randians who think that if we could just get rid of all the hindrances, the natural goodness of human beings and their natural, um, self-interest would interplay perfectly with invisible hand, like, you know, efficiency and everything would be fine and we wouldn't need the state. Um, I'm not, I am not ascribing that to all libertarians, but you run into some of these people who, who think that way. And I think that's crazy. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples of this point is the, um, is the veil of ignorance. You know, this, this John Rawls thing, which I've talked about a few times, which, you know, is this idea of, which I think is a very useful, um, mental exercise. Um, but you know, it's, it's like a mental tool that's useful for illuminating certain points and that kind of thing. But, you know, tools by definition are specific to certain tasks and they don't necessarily, you know, so like a hammer is really good for hammering nails. You know, it's not, uh, really good for sanding wood, you know, or whatever. Forks are really great at being, at doing fork stuff, but they're not as good at doing spoon stuff. And so the veil of ignorance thing or the original position, which I wrote about a bit in that review of uh, nine days, um, is the, uh, is this mental exercise where you imagine that you're a, a soul in limbo and you're thinking about, and you don't know if you're going to be born rich or poor, black or white. I guess I was talking to Salatan about this a little bit today too. Um, you don't know if you're going to be born rich or poor, black or white, uh, tall or short, healthy or sick, handicapped or, you know, or, or able-bodied, you know, the whole thing. You just know that you're going to show up in a society. 
And, you know, Rawls says this is a useful way to think about how you would hedge your risk. If you designed a society where 10% of the population were, were in miserable chattel slavery, um, you probably wouldn't want to do that because there's a one in 10 chance that you would be appear in society as one of those slaves. Um, you wouldn't want to design a society where it was, you know, uh, survival of the fittest trial by combat and everything you kill what you eat. Um, because you know, you could be born, uh, needing a wheelchair or you could be born sickly or whatever, you know? And so it's, but you could also, you also have to think about what kind of society would most guarantee would give me the best shot at living a fulfilling, flourishing life. So you wouldn't want to create a society that dedicated everything to um, the most underprivileged because that would be um, a hindrance to, you know, for other people who didn't want to live in a sort of a crippling welfare state kind of thing. And so it, it lets you think about the trade-offs, and I think it's a useful thing. But you know, my two big problems with it are, one, as I've talked about before, it completely goes out the window on abortion. Because Rawls, you know, was a get was in favor of abortion rights, and the one thing that I'm pretty sure, if you were one of these disembodied souls in a waiting room, in you know, in some sort of celestial limbo, is that you wouldn't want um, to show up with your one chance to be on Earth only to be aborted um, in the womb, right? Um, and this is not me making this profound pro life point. I just think that the the logical moral failure of the original position is entirely inadequate to the issue of abortion. And, but my other sort of meta, and I don't mean Facebook, um, problem with it is that it's, it's assuming that the human intellect can design such a society. It's a, it's assuming this idea that, okay, you just give me a giant blank piece of paper and I will come up with the blueprints for coming up with the perfectly just society. And that's just not how societies emerge. Societies emerge from the bottom up. You know, Fukuyama writes about this really well in, um, what is it, The Origins of the Origins of the Political Order, something like that, um, this two-volume thing, which I actually read both to do Suicide of the West. And, um, you know, there's no, um, no one knows what the first state was. Um, they can identify a bunch of first states, a bunch of first city states, like in Mesopotamia or the Indus River Valley or whatever it is. And they emerged. Um, and the, the best theory about how they emerged, it's sort of very much similar to the theory about how European civilization really started to take off in the, you know, in the late Middle Ages kind of thing into, into the Renaissance and all that is through competition. Just as Darwin talks about how in a state of nature, one tribe that is more cooperative, that, you know, is more altruistic, um, will have greater cohesion and greater teamwork in order to, uh, and will, will have a comparative advantage in terms of fighting other tribes, uh, for scarce resources. You know, if you have one sort of communitarian tribe that, you know, has a really good sort of esprit de corps, maybe it's militaristic or Spartan or whatever, but you know, they work as a unit um, and you have another tribe that is full of sort of Randian individualists, uh, the Spartans are going to make short work of the Randians. Um, and, and so we have, and Matt Ridley's written a lot about this in sort of like where altruism comes from. 
um, we're social animals. We are, our comparative advantage has been our social nature. And um, so anyway, I'm going far afield. I can't tell you how frazzled I am. Uh, the, the, what I was getting at is, uh, so the first city states, they emerge because one sort of, you know, like one community gets a little more organized than another community that starts raiding and pillaging and, 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 you know, what is it they call it in blazing saddles doing a number 10 where they go riding into town, whooping in a whomping, um, you know, uh, raping the cattle and killing the women that stuff starts happening. And so then other communities band together and they get cooperative to defend themselves. And this creates a, it's kind of weird to call it a virtuous cycle, but in a way it's a virtuous cycle in the sense that it encourages more and more social cooperation at greater scale. And so if you didn't have this competition between different communities and ultimately different city states, they wouldn't have developed, but that's how it, it sort of works. And over the course of time, these city states then move into sort of groups of city states. And then you, one could even call them nations and then eventually empires. Um, and, you know, if you look at the rise of, of Rome, it's a, you know, like the rise of Rome, you just look at Italy well into what the 18th, 19th century. It's like just city states as far as the eye can see and, and weird little republics and, and all that kind of thing. And, um, but over the course of time, of just necessity, sort of facts of life kind of stuff, these different communities develop cultures and, um, and they work out through trial and error. And there's a lot of error. There are different cultures and it's, it's a spontaneous order or emergence, right? It is not planned. It is as you go. And, uh, we have a fairly rich record at this point of people trying to design societies or nations de novo, right? That are just a bunch of smart people get in a room and they say, okay, this is how everything's going to look. And they don't take into account culture. They don't take into account human nature because a lot of these sorts of movements, because of this God complex, they kind of think that human beings are clay that can be molded. And, you know, that's what you get in Plato's Republic. You know, you get this thing about, oh, give me three generations of children and I can create, you know, perfectly servile people. Um, uh, you know, it is, you know, this is one of the undoings of the, the French revolutionaries is that they, they, they thought they could start from some position of pure reason and simply to impose it on the crooked timber of humanity. That was society. The Soviets tried to create the new Soviet man. You know, you have, you have communes, you have, you know, BF Skinner and Walden too, and all that kind of stuff. You even had, you know, remember there was the commune that, um, the hippie socialist commune that, that Bernie Sanders lived on for a while and he got kicked out because he was such a pain in the ass. He just kept, he wanted to talk about revolution and grandiose, you know, conceptions of political economy and socialism and all this kind of stuff. While other people were trying to like, you know, shovel the manure out of the, the barn or whatever. And he was just a huge pain in the ass. Um, even as he was saying how easy it would be to sort of design society from, you know, that he could come up with a design for society, society that would spring from his forehead, like a bolt from, um, you know, Zeus's. And, um, and so this, this sort of assumption that, uh, you know, you can comprehend everything and account for all the variables, I think comes from, you know, this, this kind of God complex 
um, perspective. It's this illusion of control. I was, you know, I had David Bonson on, and that will air on Tuesday, and it was a good conversation. Um, he finally got through my melon head. Um, he finally persuaded me about this inflation stuff. Um, but, um, you know, we talked about, you know, probably the, one of the most, the thing that sort of turned him into a Hayek geek was um, Friedrich Hayek's essay on the, um, the uses of knowledge in society. That's a rough paraphrase of the title. I can't really remember, you know, and, you know, and Hayek, you know, he does not talk in terms of like God complex and all these kinds of things, but he's getting at the same sort of principle, which is that, and I promise I'm going to get back to what got me on this in the first place. Um, the, the planners that he, the pl- the idea of economic planning that so enraged, him, you know, Hayek and, you know, and consumed him was that it was basically, it worked on a very similar assumption that an individual expert or small group of experts could have so much knowledge and, and mastery of that knowledge. Um, and all of the, and knowledge of all of the ways, all of the different variables in a society would interact with each other, that they could set prices from some, you know, boardroom in, in Washington or Moscow or London or whatever. Um, because markets were inefficient and it got it completely backwards. Markets are vastly more efficient and markets are a way of, what is it? Oh God. Is it Boudreaux? Here's this thing that, um, prices are, uh, prices are a, an incentive wrapped in a signal or a signal wrapped in an incentive. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's something like that where, you know, the market takes all of these incredible, this incredible number of variables and it reduces them to a price. And so, you know, I mean, this is the I pencil point, you know, the, the number of things that go into the price of a loaf of bread, it has everything to do with the spot price for shipping containers to, to move wheat from one place to another and the, what the price of rail is compared to the price of, of a boat. It has to do with the weather in various parts of the world. It has to do with the prices of other commodities that farmers can substitute for. It has to do with changing tastes in the marketplace. You know, like, like the, the idea that some planner like Rexford Tugwell or Harold Ickes in the New Deal, you know, that they could take into account um, if all of a sudden, you know, uh, paleo diets become really par- popular and no one wants carbs anymore. Um, is just sort of ludicrous. And, you know, and like in, during the New Deal, there's this famous slaughter of the pigs where they had such a hard time figuring out how to get uh, commodity prices right for pork bellies or pork products that they ended up slaughtering like 7 million pigs just to create more scarcity in the market because they did not, um, they didn't let the market sort these things out for itself. And, um, and this is why I've long argued, I think I, I think on the first or second solo remnant, I talked about this, but you know, I've long argued that the, the, the really interesting argument, which was really done through proxies and carom shots and whatever in the 20th century wasn't Hayek versus Keynes. That was a pretty rarefied, um, thing about, you know, prices and, and, um, um, and monetary stuff and economic cycles and all that kind of thing. I'm sure I'm butchering the nature of their, their, their debates, but, um, 
you should definitely watch the the Russ Roberts rap video about Keynes versus Hayek. But the rap video that I would really love to see is Hayek versus John Dewey, because John Dewey was the guy, the progressive philosopher, the heir to William James, um, who was really the stand-in for this conception of being able to of experts, you know, technocratic experts and engineers. This is back when social engineer was a positive term. Um, could uh, through just raw intellect plan societies better than um, what you could get from markets. And Hayek's point was that you're just never going to have no small group or never mind individual is going to have nearly enough information to be able to set prices. You have to sort of let go of the reins and let markets work out bottlenecks, shortages, substitutions, you know, all these kinds of things, which the market is really, really, really good at. And so I told you I was going to get to where I was trying to go. This gets us to, you know, this, this thing about this God complex about isms is that it, 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 it's, it has this God's eye view or bird's eye view of what society should look like. And at that level, that's almost by definition, an aesthetic point of view. It's like you look out the window on a plane and you see these giant, you know, weird patchworks of squares that look like a weird quilt. Um, and that's because all the farms, they have different, you know, uh, you know, crops at different stages, you know, in all these different places. And you can think, okay, well, is this really, you know, the efficient way to do this? Is this not, is this is not what the thing is supposed to look like. And from that altitude, that kind of made sense. But if you're the farmer on the ground, you know, your farm and what your soil can yield or what the market wants you to produce better than the sort of technocrat looking out a plane window. And yes, I'm being fairly metaphorical here. And so like the social justice stuff, my problem with this, and this is Hayek's problem with the social justice stuff is it works from this kind of aesthetic point of view, right? So like, I mean, let's give a practical thing. There is this weird sort of almost naturalistic fallacy that says the distribution of men and women throughout a given sector of the economy should be equal. And if it's not equal, it is a sign of some injustice being done, right? Some disparate impact, systemic sexist problem of some kind. It can't possibly be the result of human choices that certain, you know, that certain occupations, for whatever reason, I don't give a rat's ass, that certain occupations are more appealing to women than to men and vice versa. And, um, and simply because there aren't a, a, a aesthetically equitable distribution of women who want to be computer programmers or physicists doesn't mean that the computer programming or physicist physics industry are necessarily sexist. Now it's possible that there's sexism going on and that sometimes that's true. You know, I'm sure there's a kind of a weird dork toxic masculinity in a lot of sort of Silicon Valley, you know, uh, computer programming operations. I, I believe that's possible. But um, it might also be that, that there's something about the mindset that makes you want to be a computer programmer that attracts those kinds of men that doesn't attract those kinds of women. People are complicated, right? I mean, it is not a, is, it's not a sign of anti-white racism that there are, you know, wildly disproportionately more um, African-Americans in the NBA than there are whites. 
Um, and and you don't have to resort to, you know, you know, sinister, you know, genetic racist biological arguments either. You can just say that like in the communities that African-Americans come from, basketball is much more popular. It is seen as a much more, um, positive thing to be successful at. It is seen as a more reliable, probably wrongly, I think, but whatever, you know, we also hoop dreams, you know, but it's seen as a more reliable path to glory and success and wealth than other paths. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, the NBA is racist against whites when they don't send as many, when they don't get as many white players. And you find these kinds of things all over the place that there are, you know, that women like psychotherapy more and psychology and, and psychiatry and veterinary sciences and biological sciences and certain specialties within, you know, medicine more than men do and vice versa. And it, it's, only if you have this abstract kind of arrogant godlike view of how people are supposed to use their freedom that makes you resort to these kind of social justice arguments and the problem is is that you then have social justice kind of solutions that create arbitrary quotas arbitrary barriers or inducements to get the right kinds of people in the right kinds of places doing the right kinds of things in proportion to their, you know, representation in the population or whatever. And who the hell are you to say what people want to do with their lives? And why are you so freaked out if you get a statistically, um, you know, surprising distribution of people's, um, you know, desires out in society? It's, it's none of your business. And I think that you get a very similar thing with, with nationalism these days. That's how I got onto this thing is this idea that somehow you have, you have a notion of what the entire society should look like because you have this conception of it as one organic whole. Um, and when the parts of the body politic aren't doing what you're, what you, what fits your blueprint or your conception of what the society is supposed to look like, you think that not only is that wrong and bad, but you think, that the state should be able to touch up the canvas and make it look the way it looks in your head. And, um, and you find this kind of thing all over the place. Um, um, and it's, it's, again, it's, it's not a wholly left-wing thing by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I'll give you an example. I saw a tweet earlier today where somebody was, going after um, Dan McLaughlin, my friend Dan McLaughlin at NR, for um, supporting, prosecuting the January 6th rioters. And the, the idiotic response was, oh, so you're in favor of a double standard where, where Black Lives Matter rioters should get away with you know, their violence, but um, you know, Trump-supporting MAGA-type people have to be punished with the full weight of the law. And Dan's point was the right one. Was like, no, you punish all rioters, regardless of skin color or motivation. Breaking the law is breaking the law. And um, this is one of the ways in which this tribal stuff feeds into this sort of God complex stuff where you, um, you think you're dealing with people who are picking winners and losers to your detriment. So now you want to pick winners and losers to your benefit. 
And what gets lost in the process is these classically liberal notions of rule of law and neutrality and judging people by their conduct, not by their thoughts. Um, and it's double standards for as far as the eye can see. And so like one place where I saw this the other day uh, from a bunch of people, and I got some pushback when I, when I criticized it, is you, know, you hear a bunch of people saying that if Kyle Rittenhouse were black, um, he'd go to jail. Or if he shot a bunch of white guys, he'd obviously go to jail regardless of what, if, regardless of what the facts are in Rittenhouse's case. But he's getting you know, this treatment because he's white. Um, or vice versa, that if he had killed black people, um, you know, things would be different. Um, uh, and you know, the problem with this sort of thinking is, okay, let's assume that if a black guy had gone and killed two white guys under the same fact pattern, um, that he would be sent away for first degree murder. I don't believe that's necessarily true, but let's just sort of entertain it for argument's sake. And the assumption buried in this is that, that Rittenhouse shouldn't be convicted for murder, but if he were black, he would be, and therefore it's unjust to con then therefore it's unjust not to convict Rittenhouse for murder, right? I mean, it's, it's like, if you were a black guy, they'd throw him in jail right away. And the, the suggestion there is that that would be wrong. Well, if it's wrong to do it to a black guy, why is it not wrong to do it to a white guy? I have no problem being angry. Um, although getting really angry about hypotheticals is kind of a waste of people's time. But, um, in principle, I have zero problem with getting angry at the notion that black people are not being treated justly. That does make me angry. They should be treated justly. Everybody should be treated justly. But if it is true that black people are being treated unjustly, in what way is it a serious argument to say, well, let's spread the injustice around more equitably and treat more white young men unjustly as well? Fix the injustice. Don't like, um, don't universalize it. It just sort of seems obvious to me. There's this, and you, you get a version of this kind of thing with the death penalty stuff a lot where, um, people will say that, um, because X person was, you know, wrongly convicted, um, of, you know, first degree murder and is put, put on death row. Um, that other people on death row should be liberated. No, the people who didn't commit murder should be taken off death row. I mean, look, I, I get it if you're just completely opposed to the death penalty. That's an honorable position to have. But um, you can't make the argument that because one person was innocent um, that people that we know are guilty um, shouldn't get the death penalty either unless you're just doing it as a tactic to get rid of the death penalty and you don't actually really care about, you know, the arguments at face value. And you get the reverse with a lot of pro death penalty people where pro death penalty people will say, um, you know, that, that, um, the death penalty is important because it's a deterrence. Now I think there's a benefit to the death penalty being a deterrence, though the way that we do it, I don't think the deterrence effect is, is very powerful. Um, but, um, but that's not an argument. That's not a moral argument for, um, the, for the death penalty. Um, 
either someone deserves a punishment or they don't. To say that you're going to punish one person because it'll have a sobering effect on other people, particularly when you're talking about the death penalty. I mean, it's one thing to prosecute shoplifting to send a signal. It's a little different. But you should prosecute shoplifting because it's wrong, first and foremost. But the person that you're at, who's on death row, he's not responsible for anybody else's murders. And the idea that somehow um, that you're going to tip to the you're going to tip the scales in favor of the death penalty because you think it'll have positive effects in deterring other crimes is unjust and wrong. I mean, Ernest Vandenhag had this line about it. You know, he said something like, "Deterring the crimes not yet committed of others does not morally justify execution of any convict." except to utilitarians because utilitarians don't really care about those kinds of um, moral justifications. And I think um, the, this is a very social justice way of thinking about things is that you have this abstract notion of balancing justice across people and, um, and you're willing to sort of reward certain people because of bad things that may have happened to their ancestors um, or because uh, other people, you know, you know, there's some sort of transitive property that says, you know, um, that, that, let me put it this way. I don't know. Like there's, I, I, I don't believe I have any slaveholders in my, um, family history. You know, my, my, my dad certainly doesn't come from a family of that. My mom did, was born in Virginia, but her family was originally from, uh, New England. And, um, um, but regardless, let's say that my great grandmother had or grandfather had slaves. Um, I'm not responsible for that. I didn't do that. The notion of intergenerational sin is evil, right? That's how you get things like serfdom. That's how the things you get, you know, um, like caste systems where, you know, supposedly in some primordial prehistory, certain groups of people did certain things. And so then like they have the market cane for all time. That's a very social justice way of thinking about things because you see the entire society is one grand equation and you're in charge of balancing so that all the numbers add up. And that's not the way to do this stuff. All right. So I, I'm done with, with all of that. Um, for the time being, I have no idea if I was just gibbering there. Um, let's talk for two seconds, I guess about, uh, Paul Gosar. I will confess, I have not studied it, the the stuff closely. I did watch the anime thing, and it's uh, where you know he's like this Japanese samurai techno warrior dude, and he kills you know uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and seems to be interested in more violence against Biden and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, it's you know. It's it's late night Japanese game show crazy. And the fact that his staff actually put it together is, you know, I, I used to, you know, I used to talk all the time about um, what's his name, uh, Madison Cawthorn, how he sort of and Matt Gates, how they represent the 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 corruption of of Congress by people using it for their own sort of personal aggrandizement you know, the whole platforms versus molds, you know, stuff about institutions. And, you know, you know, Madison Carthorn famously said that he was not setting up 
a legislative or policy shop in his office. He was going to focus entirely on communications because Madison Cawthorn's an idiot and he cares more about like own the libs stuff and, and, um, being and 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 getting attention than he cares about actually doing anything for his country or do his job. And the same thing goes for Matt Gates, the performative jackwads. But, the idea that you would go in and have actual staffers in your office paid by the U.S. government and tell them, make this thing, puts all that stuff to shame. It is just mortifyingly, embarrassingly stupid. And in a rightly ordered political system and a rightly ordered Republican Party, um, the Republican Party and Kevin McCarthy and the leadership in the House would do every single thing they could to get them out of Congress and out of their lives and certainly to marginalize them. And so I think he absolutely deserved censure in, in broad terms, but I think he deserved censure and, and worse for all the other crazy racist nonsense BS that he does. But on the specifics of this thing, I have a more nuanced view. Um, I actually read the, the censure motion and you know, I thought about it. It's sort of like the impeachment thing. You know, one of my, obviously I think Trump should have been impeached both times. I think he should have been convicted both times. Um, but I also think that the way the Democrats handled impeachment was all screwed up. And, um, I mean, the fact that we're doing a January, the January 6th committee, which I'm supportive of, but the fact that we're doing this now after we had had impeachment is, is nuts, right? I mean, it may be necessary now because they screwed up impeachment, but Normally in impeachment, you, you set up committees that do hearings and investigate things. And, you know, I don't want to go deep into the executive privilege stuff again, but there should properly be almost no executive privilege in the face of an impeachment hearing. Um, you know, that was sort of George Washington's whole point is that Congress's power is supreme. It's investigatory power is supreme when um, it's looking at impeaching a president. And regardless, those sorts of committees, you know, with counsel and, 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 and search warrants and all that kind of stuff, if you're going to have that stuff that should have been done in the context of ideally that should be done in the context, in the context of impeachment. But, um, Nancy Pelosi went for a quick thing. She very deliberately did not try to build support among Republicans. She did not consult with Republicans how to, about how to write the articles of impeachment. They gave Republicans, I think, a, a regrettable, but they gave them a, they gave them a bunch of excuses not to vote for the impeachment articles. You know, I don't really agree a lot with like Chip Roy's arguments and stuff, but I think he's, or I don't agree with his vote necessarily, but I think his criticism of the, the articles of impeachment was, was spot on. I mean, I was at the very least certainly defensible. And, you know, I think it was Andy McCarthy said, you know, the, they just should have done, first of all, the, you know, again, they should have consulted with Republicans to see what would be the most difficult thing for Republicans to vote against and then written it accordingly. But they also should have made Republicans, um, impeachment managers. You know, they all like to quote Liz Cheney on the floor, but they didn't make her one of the managers. Um, and back then she was the number three in leadership still, it would have been a major psychological game changer, um, to have it be a bipartisan thing where they were fighting for 
the integrity and the prerogatives of the House of Representatives, not simply the things that bother Democratic leadership. Um, you know, Democratic leadership and Republican leadership are not part of the constitutional structure. The House and the Senate are. Anyway, you know, as Andy McCarthy said, you know, one way to write the article of impeachment would just be to ding Trump for um, his dereliction of duty. And that's a really, really hard one um, to say he didn't, um, particularly if you had investigations, you know, to back it up where you can get timelines and phone logs and all that kind of stuff. Trump sat by while a mob was disrupting a constitutional process, an important constitutional process, and trying to intimidate and harass and, and inflict violence upon the first branch of government. And he sat there watching TV and being yelled at and being told how um, you got to call this off. And he refused to do it for a really, really long time. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in Washington that if he, um, uh, that there are these outtakes of the various videos that uh, they didn't use. Eventually, you know, he did that video where he told people to go home and that he loved them. But apparently it took a long time to convince him to do even that. And some of the earlier things apparently were really bad. Um, and the question is, can the investigators get them? No, I didn't mean to talk about impeachment, except in to say we saw something of a similar dynamic with uh, this censure thing, where it includes, you know, first of all, it includes weird, dumb stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it's untrue. I don't know if it's true. It just, it's sort of woke pandering campus seminar nonsense about violence against women around the world. And this is a hindrance to their equality and all these kinds of things. Fine. I mean, like I'm not, again, I'm not saying that stuff is not true. It just had no place in this thing. It was just sort of, it was just such flannel mouthing boilerplate, you know, you know, blue check Mark boob bait. Um, and it was really dumb, but also they, they worded in a way where they were, you know, um, uh, criticizing the Republican party and Republican leadership and not just Gosar. Now I agree entirely with the criticism. I think Kevin McCarthy has behaved reprehensibly for a long time. And I would love to see him pelted off the public stage. Um, uh, but you're not going to get large numbers. I mean, just, I mean, again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. This is just a freaking fact of political one politics 101 you're not going to get large numbers of republicans to vote to censure vote on a censure resolution that censures themselves it's just a silly thing to do unless you're doing it for the reasons nancy pelosi is doing it was to make the republicans look bad because the way a lot of people a lot of people covered this thing was the republican party refused to condemn republicans in the house refused to condemn paul gosar when and only like Kinsinger and, and Cheney voted for the censure thing, when the way that thing was written, it allowed Kevin McCarthy to fairly accurately say, "Look, they're doing this for politics," and um, and they were doing it for politics. And my point is that some of these things can't be done solely for, um, uh, you know, short-term partisan political advantage. You have to have some sprinkling of, of principle and intellectual consistency and some eye towards the long game and not just the next news cycle. And so, yeah, Kevin McCarthy is absolutely right when he criticized 
Nancy Pelosi saying that this was this was all about politics. But let's be clear. The reason the Republicans didn't vote for the thing was all about politics, too. Um, and it would have been so much smarter and so much better if they just simply wrote the thing narrowly aimed at what Gosar did and what a jackass he is and didn't drag in, you know, UN reports about violence against women and, you know, around the world or take, you know, swipes at the Republican Party and the Republican leadership if the goal was to actually get a real censure vote, you know, against the guy. Instead, it was this narrow partisan thing, which gives good talking points, and they'll be talking about it for days on MSNBC, and that's fine. Um, but it's uh, it's just shabby short-term stuff that is all about narrow partisan interest and and framing and messaging and and that kind of stuff, rather than actually doing your job seriously. And um, I think the whole thing is is just gross. Um, all right, I guess I've talked long enough. And um, um, as I was saying on the Salatan podcast today, uh, my um, my friend Shannon Coffin, I was talking to him about something yesterday, and he was saying, you know, I got these friends. You've met them, blah 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 blah. And they're like, is Jonah okay? He sounds so down and so dire and depressed and all that kind of stuff. And I really apologize if I've sounded like that. Um, I don't mean, you know, like I got a lot of crap going on. Um, you know, and I get frustrated for all the reasons I've talked about today and basically every other podcast I've ever done with a lot of things that are going on in politics in the last couple of weeks, both because I was sick and then, um, uh, some stuff where oh, this is the other thing that, that Shannon was like, and also he keeps talking about how he's going to reveal this thing and then he never reveals it. And he is like, whatever. And I was like, I joked to Shannon. I was like, well, dude, that's just showmanship. Um, but that's really not what's going on. Um, it's just, there's been this thing that's been dragging out for a very long time um, that I've been trying to do the right way. And I haven't been able to talk about it yet. That'll change soon. Um, and you'll know it when you hear it. And um, I'm Okay dispatch is okay. My family's okay. All that kind of stuff. It's just been very stressful dealing with a bunch of stuff that are kind of, they're definitely high stakes for me and, um, and for other people. And so, uh, but I, so I apologize if I let that leach into this too much. I don't, I didn't mean to be cryptic. You know, I didn't mean to keep dropping sort of what happened to the Russian and the pine barons and Sopranos kind of stuff. Um, um, it just, you know, I don't have a script for this thing and I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, um, just, uh, going, you know, uh, just going with what, what comes into my head. And, and that goes for the interviews too, is like, I, I think, I don't think I'm the greatest podcaster in the world. I wish more people listen to the podcast. We do well compared to, you know, 90% of other podcasts, but there are a lot of people who listen to other podcasts that I think are crap um, that get a lot more listeners and we're going to try and change that. But um, I think one of the things that make, first of all, that I think adds value to the podcast, to the remnant, is that I don't do sort of classic, I have a list of questions in front of me and I'm going to work through these questions and that's it. I don't do interviews like that. I try to have conversations with people. 
and I listen to them and I don't really have notes. Um, I was thinking about EFT, you know, what is it? Not, not EFT. Is it, um, what's the fungible token thing? Um, I guess it's EFT, electronic fungible token. You know, these ridiculous things that are selling for all this money. I have still at my office at AI, my notepad from my very first episode of the remnant where the, Oh, I think the only notes are like the name of the show and me writing, I don't know what I'm doing. And anyway, so I think that one of the things that is a comparative advantage of this is that I actually, I have people on that I'm interested in talking to. Um, I know that some people think that leads to a lack of diversity of guests and they're probably right sometimes, but you know, there are people I just like talking to. I like talking to Chris Starwater. I like talking to Jim Garrity. I like talking to Will Salatan, you know? And there are lots of people I'd like to get on here that I haven't talked to that I would like to talk to. But, um, you know, one of the, I'm not trying to be defensive either. I'm just, you know, I have just trying to be open and honest with you guys as I, um, try to unwind from caffeine poisoning and nicotine poisoning. Um, uh, one of the things that makes it possible for me to do this thing, given all the other stuff going on in my life is I do it the way I like doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's like the G file. People complain about the G file sometimes because they don't understand that the whole point of the G file is that it's just what I want to write about the way I want to write about it. That's Dr. Johnny Fever and WKRP when Andy Travis finally tells him, um, look, you don't have to play disco. And if you want to say booger, you can say booger. And so, you know, the first episode he says booger, maybe we'll play that at the end. And, um, you know, I do lots of other more mature kind of writing and sometimes it's in the G file and sometimes it's not. I do more serious podcasts where we get into arguments and that. But the way I do this is, is, is I, I try to be my authentic self. And that means sometimes I ramble like I'm doing right now. And I, sometimes I say, uh, and ah, too many times. And sometimes I repeat jokes because I can't remember if I've said them on the podcast or not. Um, you know, there's a reason why there are the bingo cards or the bingo cards. Um, but, uh, I do take constructive criticism well, and I appreciate, you know, that people care about the podcast and care about me. I care about you guys. I love, 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 you know, our dispatch and the members of our dispatch community. And we got some cool community stuff coming down the pike. Um, and I love the feedback I get from everybody. I can't reply to everybody, but I, 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 I try to read everything. I mean, sometimes when the comment section goes, 400 comments long and it's replies to other people's replies about stuff that I never said that they didn't, you know, I, I can't say I read all of that stuff straight through, but I really try to stay abreast of where people are coming from. And I've been, you know, with obviously there are always going to be exceptions, but for the most part, 99% of, you know, the listeners and the dispatch members that I've encountered in one form or another have been great, really thoughtful supportive people. And I'm, I'm truly and deeply happy in what I'm doing and grateful for you guys. And I figured I would end on this note about gratitude because Thanksgiving's coming and I love Thanksgiving. Um, I know I got a bond, the Bonson podcast is Tuesday. So, and we didn't talk about Thanksgiving there, but here I am talking about it again. I Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And, um, and you guys know that I think that gratitude is really important. And, um, and, and one of the things I am truly and sincerely grateful for is you guys. So, and I mean guys in the most uh, 
Catholic sense possible so as to include gals and anybody else. So thank you all very much. I look forward to talking to you again, probably from the Pacific Northwest. Um, and if you see me driving by with a dingo and a spaniel hanging out the window on the interstate, say hello. And with that, I'll see you next time. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm hoping this is the right mic. One, two, three, four. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, starting over. Booger.